and welcome to episode six of the Fountain Court podcast, entitled The Life of a New Silk. I'm Laura John, a barrister at Fountain Court, and in this podcast, I speak to five of our newest QCs who each took silk in 2020. Amongst other things, we discuss the perceptions of silks and their traits and skills, both as we viewed it when we started at the bar and as we view it now, the right time to apply for silk and the experience of that application process together with some tips and insights as to how each person approached it. The transition from junior to silk, and also whether becoming a silk has met their expectations so far. We also spoke about the impact of the pandemic on their first year in silk. The discussion was particularly interesting for me, as I was appointed silk this year, so it would be good to hear about what I might have in store for me over the next 12 months at least. Joining me in the discussion are Chloe Carpenter QC, Chloe has a broad commercial practice encompassing regulatory and disciplinary work and was shortlisted as Professional Discipline Junior of the Year at the Chambers Bar Awards in 2019 before she took silk. Robin Barclay QC. Robin specialises in international civil and commercial fraud, bribery, money laundering, market abuse and insider trading, plus a wide range of banking, financial services and regulatory and disciplinary investigations. Edward Levy QC who has a wide-ranging commercial and civil practice spanning commercial litigation and arbitration with particular specialisms in banking and finance, energy and natural resources, civil fraud, professional negligence and professional discipline. Tamara Oppenheimer QC, whose expertise includes aviation, banking finance, commercial disputes, fraud, insurance, arbitration and professional negligence. Tamara is also an expert in the law of privilege. And finally... Giles Wheeler QC, whose experience covers a range of areas, including substantial banking disputes, including mis-selling cases, fintech disputes, derivatives and poker matters, together with civil fraud, regulatory and professional negligence. I do hope you enjoy the episode. So uh, the first question is for you, Chloe. When you first started as a barrister, presumably at the sometime at the beginning of this century, <laughs> what was your view of silks and what did you think, what qualities did you think they possessed? <laughs> well, it's obviously quite hard to remember now because, as you say, it was over 19 years ago. Um, but I know that when I started pupillage, um, I thought that silks were very senior, impressive, and I was quite daunted by them. As I got to know silks, so after pupillage and when I started working as a barrister, I still obviously thought they were very senior and impressive, but at least less scary. As regards the qualities I thought they had, I think I thought they had a detailed and technical knowledge of the law, excellent judgment, great advocacy and excellence at leading a team. As thinking about how that differs now, I suppose to some extent it doesn't differ at all. As in, I still think that the skills required are the same as what I thought at that time. So excellent knowledge of the law and judgment, great advocacy and excellence at leading a team. But I suppose what's changed for me in the meantime is instead of seeing it as a thing apart, it didn't occur to me in those early years that I would ever be a silk myself. So it seemed like a completely different world to me at that time. Whereas now it seems more normal and therefore, obviously, I'm not daunted by it because it's something I'm actually doing myself now. That's interesting. Can I just ask, 
So you, you never thought that you would be a silk, is that what you're saying? Or it never occurred to you or you didn't give it much thought or? I never thought that I would or that I wouldn't. I just didn't think about it uh, in those early years. It, it just seemed so far off and something way into the future. And therefore, it just didn't enter my thought process at all, one way or the other. Um, I'm, I'm not the sort of person that has had a plan. I haven't had a career plan. I haven't thought, this is what I'll do in five years. This is what I'll do in 10 years. I, I wasn't that kind of person. So therefore, I literally just didn't think about it one way or the other until it came to the point where, I was starting to think, oh, this is something I should do. And then I started to think about it. So I think what that means, Chloe, is in about five years, we can expect you to be Mrs. Justice Carpenter, even though you're not, even though you may not be thinking about it now. Is that right? I doubt it. (laughs) Okay. And so given that you felt maybe there was a divide or at what point did you start thinking about it for you then? If you started off not thinking about it one way or another, when did that start to change? Firstly, I started to notice that I was often against silks and so either on my own against a silk or sometimes me on my own against a silk and a junior or sometimes me as a junior leading another junior against a team involving a silk and I started to think hang on a second (laughs) I seem to be spending a lot of time against these silks you know that's the first probably the first reason I started to think about it and then the second reason I started to think about it was you know obviously there comes a point where other people start to say to you colleagues or other barristers that you know well have you applied or if not why haven't you applied and so I started to think about it probably for the first time about five years ago but not in any serious way and I only started seriously thinking about it about three years ago. So one of my leaders once said to me when we were talking about this very question and I told him I hadn't thought about it and I didn't feel ready. And he said to me, ready? There's no such thing as ready. He said, all that happens is that you see everybody else's names getting silk around you the year before. You think, oh, now I've got to do it. Was that part of it at all? Or was it really just advice and your own experience rather than? No, I think that's definitely a part of it. You are either against silks and you start to think, hang on, well, why, why don't I start to think about it? Or you've been against senior juniors maybe one or two years ago, and then they take silk and you, you think, well, hang on a second, you you don't see yourself as different to that person and therefore it makes you start to think about it. So I totally agree with that comment that you were, somebody said to you. So your leaders, some of them spoke to you about asking you whether you'd thought about it. Is that right? They had that you had those conversations? Yes. Did you find those useful, encouraging, frightening? (laughs) All of the above. Definitely useful. I think it's very important that, and I would see that now as an important role for me to encourage other people. But so I think it was useful, but absolutely quite scary and actually found those conversations quite stressful at times because at the end of the day, obviously, you have to make your own decision. And um, the job itself can be very full on. And to me, at times when people were saying those things to me, it felt like just another thing for me to have on my plate. But I am grateful (laughs) that they did do it. No, quite. Well, speaking of things on our, our plate, that brings us neatly to talking about the actual applications process. And I think, Robin, you might have something to say about this. I mean, once you've decided, as Chloe says, to apply for Silk or you've figured out that that's where you're at, as it were, what are the first sort of initial steps? I mean, even before you start thinking about filling in the form, what sort of things do you think or did you do that you thought you didn't do that might be helpful? Yeah, I mean, there were four things, I think, really, that I, I did. The first thing was to just visit the QC Appointments website and review you know, fairly briefly, but to get a proper feel of it, you know, the application form, the, all the guidance notes that's on the, for, on the website, the competency framework, 
you know, so ultimately what you're going to be tested against, the reports from previous years, competitions, and then the sort of panel approaches to competencies, all of that written guidance is all there, pretty useful. The second thing that I did was consult members of chambers and colleagues from outside chambers and other members at other sets of chambers with recent experience of the competition, because I think it's, it's right to say that it's evolved over time. And there are certain themes that maybe 10 years ago were looked at in order to, to, to sort of hit the competencies, which have changed. Things like diversity and inclusiveness and, and how you go about leadership and proving that. I think that's changed. So I think it's important to, to speak to people with recent experience. And then thirdly, consulting the clerks, because I th- it's certainly in my experience, they were saying to me, look, you're ready. And I think one of the things that by looking at the application forms and looking, thinking about all these cases that you've got to get and demonstrate the competencies through, if you've got gaps in your competencies, then the clerks are the obvious first port of call to basically help you fill them by getting you the right cases and or in front of the right judges or with the right solicitors because you've obviously got to get assessors. And then fourthly, it was just to create and then execute a very simple and achievable plan of attack to actually complete the form in good time. And what I did, speaking to other colleagues, particularly from Chambers, was I gave myself 18 months to do that because I didn't want to do it a second time. And thankfully, I got through the first time. But it was just, I thought it was very expensive, probably incredibly nerve-wracking, the whole experience, putting your head above the parapet for the first time, arguably. And um, I didn't want to do it again. So it was all about buying myself time and putting myself in the best opportunity to do so. And I thought it was, so it, was, it, it was essentially, to answer your first question, it was pooling information from a variety of different sources and then using that to create a plan of attack and then, and then executing it over a number of months. I mean, that sounds like highly organised and like great advice. I mean, one of the things I found, however, was that I mean, I, maybe I approached it slightly differently, but even within that structure, one of the things I found hardest was approaching referees. I, I don't know, I found it very, it kind of slightly went against the grain to approach people and I felt I found it very difficult even drafting the emails. It was sort of slightly, I think excruciating would be the word because you feel exposed you feel like you're asking them to do something they may or may not want to do, or they've had 20 requests already. And that, I think, made it harder for me to kind of just get on and do it. But how did you approach that in terms of approaching referees? A variety of different approaches. One was in person. So if I was in court, then often I'd send a message through the judge's clerk if I could go and see the judge after the court hearing and ask them in person because I'd appeared in front of a number of different judges on a number of different times. So I, had a, I felt as though I had a sufficiently good relationship with them to be able to ask them. And I thought it was more appropriate to ask certain judges in person as well, rather than through an email. Other judges and also assessors, I picked up the phone too and did it that way, because I thought that, again, the, my relationship with them, with them was such, and I have to say this applied to more to solicitors and barristers rather than the judges, did it that way and then thirdly um, in relation to judges that I didn't really know then I put something in writing and I also a a short letter and with that covering letter I also included just for the for to be user friendly if they'd forgotten me and forgotten the case which they had no doubt done a little package of my skeleton argument or the opening note or you know the, the the order or whatever the outcome of the case was 
so that they had it ready to hand and I couldn't have made it more user friendly was the I just put myself in their shoes if Joe Bloggs you know approached me for reference how could I make it as easy as possible for them and that's really helpful I mean just just I don't know if it, what anyone else did but I, I certainly well I didn't personally approach or call any of the judges I emailed everybody some judges had already indicated to me that I should ask them and that was not all of them by the way only like a couple but the others I mean everybody even those ones I did what Robin is saying I wrote to the judicial referees and I enclosed a skeleton that I hoped was or, or, or some sort of closing submissions or whatever it was that I thought was most useful to them sometimes with the judgment if that was helpful Maybe I shouldn't even admit this. I did write to one judge. The response came back, Dear Edward, it might have helped if you spelt my name correctly. <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there was a reason why I misspelled um, this judge's name because I uh, mi mixed up the... Well, I probably won't, won't go into the details, but he, he didn't turn out to be one of my referees in the end. It, it, not because I spelled his name wrong, but because uh, it wasn't a very substantial hearing. Yeah. Well, so, for example, I got an email back from one of my judges saying, because the case settled halfway through and before I got to do much of the cross. And he said, look, I, I don't have much. I'm happy to do it, but I don't have much knowledge of your oral advocacy. Are you asking any other commercial court judges who I can ask? So I gave them, him a list of other judges so he could go and ask them, which it's always hard to know whether someone's saying to you, don't ask me or but I think he was giving me a route through there. So that's one other thing I did. In terms of solicitors, it was more like calling them. And in terms of, I don't know about you guys, but in terms of the peer barrister ones, it, it was a range. If I knew my opponent, I'd probably call them or I, a mixture of calling and emailing them, basically. Does, does anyone else have a different approach on that? I don't think I spoke to anyone to ask them. I found it way too awkward to speak to someone. So I only did it by email or letter. I would have just been mortified to have that conversation. <laughs> Yes. I mean, I, I, as I said, with solicitors, if I'd been doing a long case with them and it was kind of obvious that they would be the obvious ones to ask and they were usually always actually very nice about it. So I found that easier to talk, talk to them. But the rest, it was all in writing. I think also on your point, Laura, about, you know, judges sort of ask, caveating maybe their response. My view about that was that you had to be very humble in that regard and say, look, if, for example, one of your 12 cases you were actually led and you didn't do any oral advocacy whatsoever. And so it was obvious that that judicial assessor or indeed that solicitor couldn't testify to your oral advocacy. Then you needed to be upfront about that in the covering letter and say, look, I can, you know, it's qualified the, the, the basis upon which you were seeking their assessment. And certainly my experience where there, there were certainly one or two judges, Law Justice Appeal and things like that, who simply, I hadn't done any oral advocacy in front of because I, for that reason. But nevertheless, they were willing to act as an assessor based on the written submissions. And I, th I think that's re a really important lesson to learn because I think when we, or, or some of us here, made up the application, I think there was, it, we were told at the outset that you needed sort of ideally 12 judicial assessors, 12 practitioners, 12 solicitors, but in practice, actually, the, the panel are only looking for whatever it is, six, four and three or something like that. And so if you've got some people who you can put forward who can actually testify to certain competencies, but may not be able to testify to other competencies, but you can fill that up, fill those gaps through other assessors, then I think you can get home. And I think what seems like an overwhelming 
assessment process from external assessors can actually become quite manageable if you're if you focus your you know your fire. Can I say because all, all the five of you all did it the year before me. When I did it, it was only six solicitor referees that we needed for some. It was the same with us. I was there yeah. with you. Okay, just checking because I remember thinking I had to use all twelve, and then I got there and it's only six, so that was <laughs> that was fine. Robin, did you? I mean, I'd be interested to know actually. I don't feel anyone needs to answer, but I'd be interested out of all of the six of us, how many of us used a consultant at any stage or all stages of the process? I mean, I did. Put my hand up first. I certainly did, and I would say that I am very positive about the experience of doing so, and I'd recommend using one, a good one to anyone that came to me, and, and I've done so um, to various people who have applied um, for Silk since. I think for, for me, the, it, it is a novel process and it's very expensive to apply more than once. And as I, as I said, I, I wanted to, my goal was to get it right first time. And the, by going to a consultant, the, the amount of value added by that consultant in honing, A, my list of cases, right from, from start to finish, honing my list of 12 cases, honing my interview preparation when I, when I got to that, identify key words that the panel were looking for, I think in relation to the, the written application form and also the interview. And then afterwards, having somebody be able to be able to speak to about the questions I've been asked in the interview was just completely invaluable to me and money well spent for me. I mean, Tamara, did you use a consultant? Yeah, I, I used a consultant. I mean, I just, well done, Robin, brilliant, doing it first time. Can I just say a thing? Sometimes it doesn't, you don't get it first time. I didn't get it first time. And that's quite normal. People should be aware of that. I only discovered after I had sort of, you know, sheepishly started telling people and felt I'd been, you know, uh, kicked in the stomach that actually it happens to an awful large number of people, including some extremely impressive advocates out there who I was quite surprised when they said, oh, no, don't worry, I applied two, three times. I think it's important to say that it is not a perfect system. And yes, I did use a consultant and it certainly helped. But my material for both applications was broadly similar. And I, you know, I think it came down to the pick of referees who they, who they went to. I, I jettisoned one case where I think I detected I might have had a lukewarm reference and I, I got rid of that. But it was broadly all the same material. And I had actually used two different consultants on those two applications. But it isn't a perfect system. And, and yes, it's really important, I think, to get some sort of help. It doesn't possibly need to be a consultant. You need just need to see how this process of, of putting together this form and doing this evidence-based type advocacy, which is completely different to anything else that we've ever done before, something that I think lots of us feel incredibly uncomfortable about, is not pleasant. And if it doesn't come easily to you, you need to see what it is you're meant to be doing in order to sort of big yourself up and provide this evidence. So I'd say to any people out there, if you don't make it first time, don't worry. It's normal. It doesn't mean you're rubbish. It doesn't mean that you're, you know, not ready for silk. You just have to pick yourself up and, and do it again. Just on the consultancy point, I, I, I used a consultant and, and would recommend anyone else to do so and, and had a very positive experience. I would say I am a little bit sceptical about the whole consultancy industry. I do think that there is a huge amount of information you can get from yourself, from reading reports, from previous years, from speaking to people. You can work it out. A lot of what I think what I was told was stuff that they didn't have insider knowledge. 
at all. And actually, you can work so much of it out for yourself. I, I didn't use a consultant for the form. I just didn't think it was necessary and was happy with, with how my form was. Once you know, I'd, I'd looked at two colleagues in Chambers who'd given me their forms, and you can see how it's meant to be done. Once you get into your head this whole concept of situation, response, whatever it is, situation, action, and consequence. So in other words, this is what was going on, this is what I did, and this is what the outcome was, which is a slightly weird way to to phrase things. But once you get that formula in your head, I actually think the form, I thought, was, was there was not a huge amount to be gained from, from the consultant. But where I did think the consultant was, was a huge benefit was uh, in interview technique. And not even, and again, I'm a little skeptical about how good they were. It's just the fact of going into a room with someone you've never met before and having this horrible experience of trying to tell someone why you're so great, which is not generally speaking, the, the way that we, we do it. And I, yes, I could practice one or two questions with, with my wife and say, look, if I was asked this, this is what I would say. But it's not quite the same as being in a room and having a dry run at an interview with someone who's just firing these questions. And so on the interview, I found it totally invaluable just because it's like doing a warm-up. Uh, and then I, I, I did, did two sessions with a consultant. And when I went into the interview, I know that I was so much better in the interview because I just practiced how you do it. Mm. I, I would say sort of two things about the consultant. I mean, having used one, they're not cheap either. And Robin rightly points out sort of hidden expenses of the application. Here's your application fee. Here's your appointment fee. <laughs> There's a, a fee at every stage, which is marvellous. But the consultant just adds to that. And obviously, in an expensive process, if, if a practitioner can't afford it, I think Ed is quite right to point out there are lots of resources to that you can use. Personally, where I found it helpful was exactly, I think, what you put your finger on, Ed, was I found it was very hard for me to speak about it in the way that they wanted me to speak about it. I was speaking about it in a way that I think is sort of, it's very sort of broad to say this, but I was just sort of informational this is what happened. And then the question's like, when did your advocacy ever make a difference? I was like, honest question, probably almost never, but you're asking the wrong person, right? So so there were questions like that. He was like, no, try again. <laughs> That's not the right answer, you know? And, and it, for me, I found it quite a painful iterative process for him to pull out the answers that were going to be required. Um, and I'm sure he found it painful as well. It sounds like we had the same consultant. <laughs> well, one of the things I found interesting, and I'd be interested in anyone's view on this was one of the competencies is leadership now obviously we call you know, once you're a silk you're called a leader so you think it goes without saying but we know that all of our colleagues on the solicitor side have training in how to be a leader from a very early stage you know leadership seminars leadership conversations about what that means we don't really have any of that at the bar and i found suddenly one of the people who interviewed me she was a leadership professor in the subject effectively and obviously there's a lot of learning, a lot of thinking, a lot of principles at play and what it, what it takes to be a good leader. And I remember talking to a friend of mine who's a partner at a solicitor's firm. And when I told him one of my answers about what, what it takes to be a good leader, I told him what my, I answered as. And he said to me, well, that's not leadership. That's just management. You said nothing about leadership <laughs> so far. And then I got right to the end and said something about making a decision. He said, there you are. That's leadership. And that was interesting to me because in my mind, management and leadership aren't necessarily two distinct concepts. And I think it's quite weird that we don't really talk about leadership at the bar or what it means. Not that I'm suggesting we all need to have consultants to train us in it, but we suddenly get to the point where we're being, we're being interviewed by people who are well versed in that concept. 
And we're rather novices. We're rather sort of we've learned the practitioner way. I wondered if anyone else had that same thought or not. I think there's an element of truth in that. I mean, one of the things we all try to do is to make sure that cases run smoothly and that they they work and that that you don't need you don't have problems because you're preempting them. I think one of the questions I was asked to interview was, you know, how do you deal with things when things go wrong? And how do you sort of bring them back on track? And that's actually quite difficult when you're at the bar, because firstly, you don't necessarily have control of all of the moving parts in the way that, say, a solicitor might. But secondly, is that you, you, you do try your best to keep things on track and preempt problems. And it's almost that when the problems arise, you feel something has gone wrong, and that's what you try to avoid. So when you're being asked in an interview, to use things going wrong as an example of where you've done things well. It's always counterintuitive. I thought leadership actually was the most difficult thing to prove or to to show evidence of as a junior, because I think that it's only really when you become a leader that there is a much more of a leadership role. I mean, obviously, you could be a junior on a case and and the only barrister, you could be leading other juniors, but it's when you become a leader, there's much more of a need. It tends to be in bigger cases where there are more moving parts and there's much more scope to be a leader. Uh, And I found it quite hard to, to give examples of that, uh, especially because it depends on how you are as a junior. But I tended to have very good working relationships with my solicitors and wouldn't necessarily see myself as, you know, I'm leading the case. And so trying to prove to the QCA that, that, you, that you're good at leading teams, it's not necessarily the way as a junior you see your cases as you being the leader. You see yourself as an important part of, of an entire team, but not necessarily being the person who's leading the team, which I think is different when you become a leader and then the cases tend to be you have more of a leadership role, especially when you're, when you're leading juniors. Oh, well, that's a, a good segue into my question for you, Giles, which is Ed speaking about how he's found the change really into becoming a leader. And I just wanted to ask you, Giles, how you've, since I haven't seen you all year because of the pandemic, <laughs> how have you found the first, well, nearly first uh, full year of being a silk? I think there's a sort of transition process. I think initially there's very much a case of there being a lot of sort of relief to have got the whole application process over and done with. And you think, well, I don't need to go through all that again. And you're, <laughs> you're sort of demob happy almost that it's, it's over and done with and you can forget about it. And I think there's the sort of second phase immediately after the ceremony when suddenly you can you know, put these initials QC after your name for the first time. And it almost feels slightly odd to start with. It feels almost like you're a bit of an imposter. Is this really me? But then I think, you know, when everything settles down, you realise it is, I think, very much a case of evolution rather than revolution. People talk about sort of taking silk as if it's some sort of big bang almost. But it's not, I don't think. I think there's not really an overnight change to what you're doing. You see gradually opportunities arise that you perhaps wouldn't have got without taking silk. And you do begin to see that there's cases where the sort of solicitors are looking for you for more of a sort of big picture overview of things, whereas perhaps as a, as a, as a junior, you're more sort of embedded in the detail of a case and the, 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 the nuts and bolts of it. You need perhaps to stand back a bit more and look at the big picture and sort of show leadership in terms of giving direction in terms of how a case ought to be run. Mm, and can I ask, Giles, do you feel that, you mean, it's an obvious point really, but in the, in that kind of transition, presumably having watched other leaders do it, that's one way of... Is, but are you saying you had to sort of coach yourself to stand back and take a view or that it just happened naturally or as part of the conversations, discussions with solicitors? 
I think it's more a case of emphasis. I mean, I think as a junior, it's still something you you do, but it's not necessarily something that is you're asked about quite as much. Whereas then the emphasis changes, and in terms of sort of identifying what in the long run over the course of a case is going to be a critical point, you know, what when you get to the hearing is going to be the key point that you need to focus on, and that I think comes more to the fore as a silk than perhaps in as, as as a junior, particularly if you're a junior that's being led, where that's very much in the sort of silks territory. And does that have a, maybe it's too early to ask, but does that have a impact on how one approaches one's diary in terms of, I mean, how does, does it change much between how many cases you can take on? If you're no longer doing the sort of full detailed work of a junior, has anyone, Giles, have you found, or has anyone found you've had, you've taken on more cases, fewer cases, similar number of cases? Well, I think in truth, over the past year, fewer cases. But that's probably more because everyone's been sat at home carrying away from uh, the pandemic rather than for any other reason. But I think in the longer term, I think it depends. I think you probably can do more cases where you have a junior to sort of farm out some of the sort of detailed day-to-day work to. And you come in and you concentrate on, on, on hearings or giving the sort of big picture advice in terms of setting the direction which a case needs to travel. I think in those circumstances, you can probably take on more cases. But when you do get down to sort of the, the, the crux of a hearing, it's very noticeable that you have to, there's a lot more work in terms of preparing for a hearing because the hearings are more involved. And, and, and so therefore, there's more to do. So that's interesting. So it's it's the sort of the, the time intensity for a leader is different from the time intensity tasks for a junior, effectively. What, what has your experience been in the pandemic of I suppose, being remotely in the front row, probably from the outset? It's, it's quite difficult to answer that question because, in a sense, I haven't taken silk in any other time. <laughs> so you, the only experience of sort of taking silk is the bizarre one of sort of going to the ceremony and then coming back and, and, and sort of tidying everything up and then not being in chambers for another four months, which is <laughs> not something I've obviously experienced at, 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 at any other time. Well, surely the silk ceremony was a big super spreading event for COVID well, anyway. So I could work out. Well done. Well done, guys. <laughs> Rather surprised, actually, that it went ahead with, with, with hindsight. But, but, but there we go. And obviously, that, so, you, know, you find your, the, the whole rhythm of work suddenly changed for a whole variety of reasons. And to sort of try to work out what are those are sort of pandemic related, what are those are, are silk related is quite a difficult um, thing to do. Taking silk is almost a sort of relatively minor change by comparison with everything else that's, that's gone on. But I think that one thing that really has made a difference, and I think perhaps this is not so much anything to do with taking silk, but a consequence of the pandemic, is the way that um, we've all had to work much more electronically than we've ever done before. I mean, certainly I was very wedded to sort of paper bundles previously. And having to sort of wean oneself away from that and focus on electronic documents and doing everything via PDF, that's a, an enormous change. But actually, I think a change for the better. I think the key I'd say is searchable PDF. I like a searchable PDF. They're actually yes. useful, not the ones you can't search. A searchable PDF <laughs> with, with proper bookmarks. Absolutely. <laughs> but you realise that there's a sort of almost a completely different mechanic for getting on top of things. And whereas before the natural reaction would have been if something comes in as a, a big paper, do- a big electronic document, you print it out and you sit down and look at it. Now, actually, you, I wouldn't do that. 
but there is a, a very different mechanism for getting familiar with documents and working your way through a set of papers. It's very different, but actually I think in some respects easier and better and certainly makes life more portable. So have you gone full electronic? I mean, I find I still print out my opponent's skeleton argument and deface it. <laughs> Not with any notes, but <laughs> and also the and the pleading, you know, if I'm if I'm responding to it, I, I still find something about applying my own thoughts in the pen to the different sections and breaking them out and drawing on them and that I can't seem to break out of. No, I've done, I've done a couple of cases which have gone full way through from initial instruction to hearing without printing a single document. I'll give a plug if we're talking remote working to a piece of software that I've, I've discovered, which I have no connection with before I give it a plug, but a piece of software I would recommend to everyone to look up is uh, something called Casedo. C-A-S-E-D-O. It's an absolutely revolutionised the way I work. I'm happy to talk offline to anyone. Uh, we'll wax lyrical day and longer. What does it do? It's a way of organising your documents online and to be able to see all documents in the case in a way which you can manipulate uh, yourself, put bookmarks in, see documents side by side. So rather than having lots of PDFs open, it's a really clever piece of software which allows you to see all of the documents on one platform. It was actually designed by a tax barrister who was not satisfied with the way uh, his document management and built a system and, has, uh, and ru runs a business alongside his busy tax practice. Probably not, needed, not in need of the money. No, exactly. And <laughs> anyway, I will, t I will talk to anyone about it. I have no connection with it, uh, but it is absolutely fantastic. Are you receiving a percentage? Because you didn't declare this was going to be promotional <laughs> material in the, in the podcast. <laughs> other pieces of, other, other, other pieces other of, pieces of software, software may be available. May, may be available yeah. but I don't think any of them are as good as Casiva which I, I run all my cases on Casido, and then I have everything in the cloud, which means that whichever computer I log on to, I log on to Casido and can see all the documents for that case. Uh, on. And now you can hear a little ping as the money arrives in Ed, Ed's bank it, it, account. It, it, it's, it's okay. <laughs> I, I'm not going to need commission yet. But, uh... Uh, well, that's, really, that's actually really helpful. I'm going to check it out. Because open PDFs, especially non-searchable ones, are really irritating. I'm trying to... You need a different piece of software to, to make them convertible, which I also have got as well. Tamara, my, my questions for you are kind of slightly similar, and, and I think Giles has made an excellent point, which is, you know, I mean, I remember once asking a twin what it was like to be a twin, and they quite sensibly responded to me, what's it like not to be a twin? There's <laughs> no, no other form of experience. But um, is it a year into Silk, is it what you expected? What did you expect? Did you have any expectations? Yeah, a couple. I mean, because you obviously talk to people who are in Silk and, you know, what's it like? I suppose... One thing was expecting a slightly, hoping for a slightly different attitude from the court and clients. You know, at last, someone's going to take me seriously and start listening to me. I should say zero change on the domestic front with my children, not taking me any more seriously. Wait, you don't get more respect from your children. What's the point? Okay, <laughs> same derision. So, um, you know, I suspect we've all at some point experienced that phenomenon when you make a point in con or in court, which just doesn't have that same impact as if it would if it were made by a silk. So I was, you know, I was hoping for that. I guess, um, as, as Giles has already said, we haven't had that experience of actually physically sitting in the front row and, and having that thrill, which I think, you know, does make a difference. But I have sensed, I felt being listened to... <laughs> in court a bit more seriously and I've certainly noticed it in con and a sort of particularly 
big sort of set piece con with lots of people and there are all those virtual eyes turned on me for my view which is I say simultaneously gratifying and also slightly alarming but I mean that was one thing that I thought about you know that's what what I was expecting and then in terms of work I think I was expecting a sort of balance of elevated junior role in some cases so there are some cases I suspect we all have where we're continuing existing cases where there's already a silk on board so you're sort of effectively a, a second silk role and then there are the other cases where you're very much being instructed as the leader where there's a junior already on board or because you know you have particular expertise so Again, that rather accorded, I suppose, with my expectations of, you know, how that would be. There's, I think someone mentioned earlier, a sort of transition period as well. I think as a junior silk, some of what you're doing is not hugely different from what you were doing as a senior junior. And then you're at the same time coming on more as that silk role rather than a you know second silk in a big team. And then the last thing I was going to say about expectation is people say about silk that it's much more lumpy the kind of you know your the way your work is and that you'll have periods of intense busyness the kind of intense preparation that Giles was talking about for hearings and then periods where you don't seem to have so much on and lots and lots of inquiries where I think you know you're just the tiny tiny minnow in a pool of some you know more impressive fish and you think well I'll put myself forward, but let's be real. I'm not going to get this. So all of those things obviously happen as a junior, but I think they're more pronounced in silk. So, yeah, that's where I am on expectation and how it's panned out in, you know, it's only a year. So what do I know? But that, that's my limited experience. Well, no, I think that's a, a very good point. And g- given that you're at the beginning of the process, it might be or or process period not sure how to describe it but based on what your experience is so far what do you think you're going to enjoy most about being a silk I think that I mean the things I think I'm going to enjoy most might almost also be the thing that will slightly alarm me at time I mean it's the responsibility it's the satisfaction and the buzz that you get from thinking about how the case should be conducted and putting that into practice with your team But that's also the aspect of the job that can be so unbelievably stressful, particularly if things don't go brilliantly well. But I think that's why we all apply, isn't it? Because you get to that point where you think, I want to be the person deciding this or, you know, I want to be the person who's directing the strategy. And I think that's the exciting bit and also the sort of mega stressful bit uh, about the role. Well, that is the issue with this job is that the most fun bits are also the most stressful bits. You don't get one without the other. I think that's the, that's the, anyone else have got uh, any views on what they're going to most enjoy or least enjoy or agreeing with Tamara? Well, I think Tamara's right in the sense that one gets to the point where you've got a case that's say going on appeal or suddenly an important point emerges as a junior, that then is the point when the silk gets brought in and you then become having maybe been the sole counsel before you're then playing second fiddle to the, the silk that's been brought in. Now, you are the person who, who who stays involved or perhaps comes involved for the first time, even in those harder cases or where they go on appeal or whatever it may be and are more difficult for whatever reason, you get to do that. And that's, um, I think, much more satisfying than, than uh, being displaced. <laughs> I, think, I, I think that ties in also to just to the issue of when you know that you're ready to apply because for a long time as a junior, it's quite nice to have the comfort blanket of sitting in court and 
my leader can deal with these difficult questions and, and I can sit behind the leader and slightly feel that the pressure is off. But it's when you get to the stage when you think, I could be doing this. Yeah, I, my leader's doing it very well, but I could be making this submission. I could be answering this question. So it's actually you feel that I'd like to step up. I, I want to be doing it. I don't really want to be replaced at the last minute by, by a leader. But then, as Giles and tomorrow say, what comes with that is the pressure. The, the buck stops with you. And when you're in court, it's especially in court, but also on advisory work. But when you're in court, it's all eyes on you and you then have to you know, get it right and, and perform. Well, if you're going to quote Tupac, Ed, then we can, <laughs> we can carry on this. <laughs> but I mean, I think I've always thought um, as a junior, it's it's a very, and I've had exactly those thoughts sitting, I could do this, I could do this. And that's a dangerous thought because it's it's always easier sitting down than it is standing up. And definitely I've I've also done the sort of process of I could do this and then my leader does something, whoop, I couldn't have done that. That was That was amazing. Or that was something to note down or you know and it's a learning process and I don't think that stops at any point sitting down or standing up that you see how nicely someone else presents something and you think that was they did that even if they don't win on the point they did that beautifully and that's that's one of the reasons I like it but I agree part of the confidence of being able to do that is is a big sign of... yeah but I, I agree with you there are some cases I can think of as a junior one or two cases particularly one case in the, in the Supreme Court where I was I was led and think to myself and even now I could never have, I, 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 I just couldn't have made those submissions. The, the reply submission in this case where I was led and we, and we won 3-2, it was the reply which talked at least two of the judges round and just think to myself, well, I could never, I could never do that. Well, that's actually, not to get too pompous about it, but that's actually where I think the really great advocacy takes place in a great reply, which are very rare. Normally a reply is a sort of muddled view of thoughts from what's, what your opponent has just said. But when you hear a great reply, that really is, that really is amazing. Well, Ed, moving on to you then, you probably answered all my questions in that. Uh, <laughs> uh, how, how have you felt then about the biggest challenge or, or in transitioning? I mean, if there has been one, uh, everyone, as Giles sensibly said, it's evolution, not revolution. I mean, has there been a challenge in transitioning? Well, I, I, I mean, I agree, very much agree with Giles and uh, tomorrow also mentioned just the transition. A, a lot of my cases really are just continuing in the same way as a senior junior, I'm continuing to do, do what I was doing. And, and they're not necessarily cases which are terribly different. And, and also, I think we all try and compete for work where, where solicitors might say, well, this could either be done by a, a junior, uh, by a senior junior, which is the case that we were doing, or it could be done by a junior silk. And now we're trying to put ourselves forward, taking the work as a junior silk rather than as a senior junior. So in that respect, things are the same. But you can start to see, what, and I've got, at least two cases where it feels more like a leader's role with juniors involved uh, and i think one of the things which i do find quite challenging is is that element of losing control of the case when, when you're a senior junior or you're the junior on the case you're very much involved on a day-to-day basis you're reading all of the documents you'll be asked about correspondence and you very you're immersed in the case and in two of the cases that i'm, I'm dealing with where I do have sort of a leader's role and I'm not being consulted on a day-to-day basis and I'm just being, my junior will call up and just give me an update of what's going on. You do feel a little bit detached from the cases. Obviously, you're brought in and we've had one big hearing where we obviously have to get up to speed, but otherwise things are going on in the background. And I find that a little bit difficult. And likewise, losing control of the paperwork, the pleadings or, or the skeleton arguments, obviously, 
if you're being asked to put your name on it, you have to sign off and make sure you're happy with it. But it may not necessarily be a document in the way that you would have presented the argument. At least all the arguments are there and you have to yeah, and you have to be comfortable and happy with it. You have to learn to be able to say, well, actually, I'm very happy with this document and very happy to put my name to it, even if it's not exactly the way I would have put it. Mm, so what my old head of chambers once said, you've got to learn, it's good enough. And that's, and good enough is good enough. And so I think, are you talking about delegation as well, the sort of disconcerting aspect of not being, having all the details at your fingertips, because that's no longer your role, as it were. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and that's someone, I think we all, as senior juniors, we like to be in control of our cases. So, so delegating to other people. I should say the one, the one remote trial I did in November last year, I, I felt that at the, at the beginning of the case, thinking, well, the junior is going to be doing the, doing the written opening. That's how we divided the work. Uh, happily, the work was you know, absolutely brilliant. And then it was a feeling of, wow, this is, this is the great feeling of, be, of being a leader with your handed up documents, which are just absolutely you know, fantastic. And you're, and you're ha- happy to put your name to them. But there is a sense of, of, of detachment and having to say, right, I'm, I'm willing to, to, to let someone else deal with those aspects. You know, frankly, you're not being paid to do all, all the day-to-day work. But is that another aspect or another side of the coin? I have to ask my solicitor friend who told me it's about management, not leadership, but that delegation, understanding the strengths within your team and being able to comfortably delegate or get comfortable with that delegation, which is a change. Yeah, I think I think, I think that's right. And I think, as you get more experience and you, and you have cases which are more, the cases where there are leaders and juniors, you just have to learn that, that your practice just changes in that respect. But, but that is a transition because at the moment, yeah, lots of my cases are still just the, the same sorts of cases I could have been doing as a senior junior, but I'm now doing it as a junior. So, Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you the last question, in fact, which is a, a difficult one because it has the most ability to end up in pomposity. So warning. <laughs> and it's, it's what would your advice be to any aspiring barristers and juniors who are thinking about pushing for silk? In terms of, you mean, in terms of how to get themselves ready to, to make their application? It can be any form of advice. I mean... I think anyone who, who's, who's thinking of applying, um, the best piece of advice I could give it is, is to start thinking about the process early. It's not the sort of thing which you can just decide one day that you're going to apply to be a silk. You need to have some sort of, uh, of plan and, and working towards it. And I think one of the things that a lot of people find quite difficult, especially in our area, is getting uh, oral advocacy experience. And so I think you have to be quite pushy in, in your cases and say to, sometimes say to your leader, can I take a witness? In fact, one of, one of my 12 cases, happily I had a leader who said to me, I always give my junior a witness to take at a trial because he said to me, I like them to have skin in the game, which actually I understood when, it, when he said, you know, you, you don't just think that your job is done once you've done the skeleton. So he gave me, in fact, two witnesses. Uh, but I think sometimes you have to say to your leader, you know, can I take a witness or can I deal with a hearing? Uh, I had a quite a big injunction hearing where I was led and there was a very tricky consequentials hearing afterwards. And I said to my leader, who was perfectly happy, said, look, can I do the consequentials hearing? It's quite a tricky, a, a tricky hearing. And you have to be able to say to people, you know, I'd like to do the advocacy. I'd like to, uh, I, because if you're thinking of applying, you need that on your form. Yeah. And I think it was my experience with leaders and in fact, solicitors were aware of that too. So in the sort of two years before I applied, some of the cases I took on, I made it very clear that 
it was on the basis that I would be afforded the opportunity to do some of the advocacy. And sometimes my leader said, you take this point, you do that point. And it was a, it was a fairly, it wasn't that hard once you sort of opened the subject for that to happen. But you have to be quite pushy. And when you say, you know, what, what's the advice to someone? The advice is you've got to believe in yourself and say, you know, I'm ready to do it, but, but you've got to push yourself forward so, to be able to make that application. So um, you see, my, my piece of advice was the best one I got, which was ready. There's no such thing as ready. Because I think in my mind, the idea of being ready would, was too high a standard. I think I put too high a standard in there for what I thought that meant. And so if you, if you're, I guess everyone has a different mental approach to it. And mine would be, well, if I waited until I was ready, I'd, I'd still be waiting now, as it were. And so I'm not sh sure that I felt ready, but I felt that I could fill in the form, which was different. <laughs> I knew I was ready when I got a letter of commiserating from someone um, commiserating me for not getting it when I hadn't applied. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the height of politeness, Ed. <laughs> At that point, I thought, crikey, I really better apply because uh, uh, otherwise I'm just going to keep getting these letters of, letters of commiseration. Uh, but actually on that, and I think this is another piece of advice in terms of waiting till you're ready is not to be spooked by other people not to be spooked by your contemporaries and looking at the list and it's too easy to say oh well, you know that person's a contemporary of mine and they got it you have to apply when when you're ready and to a large extent it, it's often not in your hands because you, you may have to apply early or late depending on how your cases have fallen yeah the stars have to align as is what i would they say do. like you yeah, have to get do. the opportunity and then you have to not mess it up <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and it's not often that those two align perfectly sufficiently <laughs> in the relevant period. I agree with you, Laura, that if I'd have waited till I felt ready, I, I would never have replied. So I think a lot of it depends on your temperament and your personality. And so I had to apply when I felt looking at the form, I could meet the criteria. Because if I'd have put any higher levels than that, I, I wouldn't have applied. I don't know. Logically, it should have been enough for me to apply the fact that I was against silks and that I was winning cases, the fact that I thought I could meet the criteria and the, and the fact that other people were telling me to apply. Logically, that should have been enough, but it, it didn't feel enough at the time. And I was really feeling doubtful about whether to do it and thought about it a lot. And it, for me, in the end, it, I sort of started to think, you know, in all walks of life at the moment, there's a lot of talk about women not moving up to the next level in different professions. And in, there's a lot of talk about perhaps that being sometimes because they're not willing to put themselves forward and run the risk of it not working out. And in the end, for me, the final thing was that I've got four children of which three are daughters. And I thought to myself, if I don't do it, how can I go keep telling them that they've got to put themselves out there if I'm not willing to put myself out there? So I think it really is temperamental. And so to tell someone who is more like me, wait till you're ready, that they'll never do it. So you ha actually have to say to them, I think you're ready. And, uh, you know, can you meet these criteria? Yep. No, absolutely. And I think one of the things as well is that, as you say about temperament, different people look at criteria and decide internally whether they f meet them or not and can decide, oh, do I meet that? I mean, the criteria is excellence. So it takes quite a lot. At every level, the criteria is excellence. So if you sort of march up and think, well, I'm totally excellent. Here I go. I mean, I mean I'm sure some people approach it like that, but it, it certainly wasn't my approach. It was, as you say, it's certainly more low key than that. But Giles, what were you going to say as well? Well, I was going to say that I think anyone applying has got to recognise that there's a substantial element of luck involved. I mean, there's all this talk about competencies and of the standard of excellence that you've got to meet, all of which is, is right. But you've got to recognise that it doesn't follow that even if you do have the competencies, even if you are excellent, 
you're not necessarily going to succeed in the application because you've got to, well, you're not necessarily even going to be in a position to make an application. You've got to have the 12 hearings. So if the trial settles on the door of the court, you're not going to, there's not going to be no oral advocacy involved. That's nothing to do with your competency. That's just because the case happens to have settled. And equally, when, you know, the QCA are writing to referees, if the judge happens not to be able to remember a case where you appeared before that judge two and a half years ago, or they can remember a bit of it, but can't say enough to produce the evidence that the QCA needs. None of that's down to your competency. It's down to the pure luck of the draws to who the QCA approach, what that particular judge can or can't remember of that particular hearing. And I, recognising that, I think, allows you to uh, adopt a different attitude towards the process. Yeah. It's not make a break about you personally. Totally. And that's why I think that's what I meant when I said sort of stars align as well, that it has to be, I mean, as Ed is rightly saying, don't necessarily compare yourself in the list or do if it's motivational. I don't know everyone's different, but your year or years, if you do it more than once, might come along at certain different times. And there's nothing you can necessarily do about that. You can make the best laid plans. But as Giles says, they don't always come to fruition in the relevant timescale. So there is a question of analysing. But I will say one thing that I mean, I don't know if anyone else's view is this, but I was certainly advised that you didn't necessarily need to put down all 12, especially, you know, in our part of the bar when you might be doing one or two big cases. You might have taken some time off for parental leave. You may have had other interruptions to your work process and actually uh, approaching it. I mean, of course, 12 would be ideal, but you don't actually need to have 12. As I would say that's, that was quite an important aspect of just learning about the procedure too, just to say that. Robin, you've been very quiet. Can we tap you for some final advice? Yeah, I think that from, from my perspective, I think everybody here knows that I came to the bar after a second career. And just so tapping into that, you know, the question of when are you ready? I came at that maybe at a slightly different, through, looking at it through a slightly different lens, just because I was a bit older, arguably, than some applicants. And what, what I found in my experience of that question about particularly this as Chloe touched on about other colleagues saying to you, you know, you should go for it and you're ready, is that quite quickly, actually, in my career at the bar, which was after about 10 years, Silk started to say to me, you should be applying for Silk, you're, you're ready. And I felt like that was absolutely absurd. And I certainly felt not ready. And then I also moved chambers. And uh, along with that, I, my practice changed quite dramatically from a sort of white-collar criminal practice to much more of a commercial white-collar financial services, administrative law type practice. And trying to identify that I, A, specialised in a particular area, which I think when I looked at the form, I thought, crikey, which box do I tick for all of these? And also, within those specialisms, do I actually meet the standard of excellence for those competencies? I felt a, a tremendous sense of I probably won't make it, certainly in my, in my first application. And I think, therefore, for me, by going to other colleagues with a breadth of experience across the criminal and civil and commercial bar, and also speaking to different judges, and then getting consultant on board, I was able to sort of pull enough information together that made me think, actually, do you know what? I think I, it is worth a go. And I'll slightly chance my arm in the first stage. And if I get it, that's great. And if I don't, don't. But And then when I looked at all the guidance, and the headline point is about excellence. But actually, when you look at how the panel 
assess excellence. They're different gradings, and you can actually still achieve excellence and satisfy the criteria in order to, to get silk by not necessarily hitting the top mark, if I think it's grade seven or something, in each and every competency. And it's, again, about being realistic about what the competition, as it's called, requires of a candidacy to evidence in writing, then orally at interview. And I think it was knowing that actually, as, as Tamara said at the outset, the system itself isn't perfect. And therefore, your application is never going to be, you know, five sets of seven. There may be a few of them, but most people probably don't fall into that category. You then, I think that gave me a bit more confidence as a late comer slightly to the bar compared to some other people to make me think, actually, do you know what? I think I could probably do this and, and let, let me go ahead with it. And so, again, just on that point of where do you get your self-confidence to make the application and then take you through the first year or maybe early years of Silk? It's just seeing that imperfection saying, I'm going to ride with that wave and hope, hope for the best and uh, and do the best I can for you know my, my clients, etc. Well, thank you very much, everybody. I mean, I'm not sure when the ceremony will take place this year. I had to fill in a form online to get my letters patent, which I signed with a Harry Potter pen. <laughs> didn't feel very, didn't feel very uh, ceremonial, but it was the best that I had. The other bad news is that I'll probably be joining all of you guys for the party, since maybe even before next year we'll have a massive party with all three years of silk. Who knows? I mean, bank, our head of chambers did point out to me that since there were six of you who took it last year, even under the rule of six, I wouldn't be invited to that party. So. <laughs> Charming. But anyway, thank you all very much for taking the time to do this. And um, I hope to see all of you soon. Thanks, Laura. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. So there you have it. I hope that was an interesting insight into the life of a new silk and the process of getting there. Thank you again to my colleagues for joining me in the discussion. And thank you for listening to the Fountain Court podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and to listen to some of the other episodes available.